primary care knowledge boost, delirium. Hello and welcome back to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Today we are back with a really useful episode talking all about delirium. In the episode we speak to Dr Emma Vardy who's a geriatrician and Dr Helen Martin who's a GP and they explain to us what delirium is, why it's important to talk about and we consider the approaches for how to pick up and assess delirium in the community. Yep um, and they also discuss a useful acronym for how to remember the different causes and precipitants um, of delirium and explain the Greater Manchester Delirium Toolkit which has been developed for use in the community to act as a framework uh, or structure for approaching delirium both with the diagnosis and the management. Yeah and we'll put a link to that in the episode description. It's a great resource for everyone out there in primary care particularly people assessing frail elderly people or anyone Mm. at risk of delirium. In the episode, we do focus on best practice and in the toolkit, it talks about best practice. Obviously, general practice is overstretched at the moment. Um, In terms of learning points, though, the episode is full of useful tips to guide practice and help take better care of patients. It talks about treating delirium as a medical emergency. And for me, I feel like it's really helped me prioritise it and feel like I'm casting my net a bit wider when I'm thinking about cases yeah and that's not to mention the other learning points that we picked up from the episode which we'll go through after our discussion Uh, so for now enjoy so should we start with introductions my name is Dr Emma Vardy I'm a consultant geriatrician based at Salford Royal Hospital I work mainly in the community at the moment with community teams. I'm also clinical dementia lead um, at Salford and also have uh, senior roles across Greater Manchester in relation to dementia and delirium. My name is Helen Martin. I'm a GP. I uh, work predominantly as a locum and at the moment I'm mainly working in care homes. So I'm seeing predominantly working with older, frailer people. Um, I'm also the primary care lead for the Greater Manchester Dementia Programme, which is uh, Dementia United. Lovely. So we have very well qualified people to talk about this topic. (laughs) Shall we kick off by asking what is delirium? So um, there are various formal definitions for delirium, but I'm going to keep it simple. And the key features are it is an acute confusional state. So that's helpful um, in distinguishing that acute from chronic. So people with dementia can also have delirium. It's a change in how the person is. Um, and the, the other key feature is that it is related to an underlying uh, physical cause. Um, and there are multiple causes. I'm sure we'll come on to that later in the conversation. Um, and it might be that it's not just one uh, cause. There might be several causes in an individual. Um, and another key um part of delirium is that there is uh, fluctuation in that confusion that can be over um, sort of minutes to hours or um, sort of over the course of the day or from one day to the next. Could could I just add to that because um, I think it's really important as part of this that we do have a formal construct for delirium but I think it's also important to think about people's instinct. So uh, you often uh, what I've seen is when people coming into A&E and the family will give a history of something's not been right for the last few days. They've had this kind of feeling that something's going wrong and they've sensed a change. Uh, and sometimes that creates an opportunity for us to to act a little bit quicker. So from my point of view, I think it's really important to empower 
less experienced clinicians and families and carers to, to trust their instinct because they will notice change, which is, I think, as Emma points out, the key yeah. element of this. Uh, absolutely. And um, that's where the single question in delirium is really helpful, which is, is the person more confused or more sleepy um, than they usually would be? And that usually relates to, you know, you might add on over the last day or so. But it's just that, are they different to how they normally are? And it's it's that um, really valuable information from the person that knows that individual the best. Yeah. And and it can just be something present with, you know, something's just not quite right. Um, and it can be hard for that family member or that member of staff to really put a finger on it. But, you know, you can kind of sort of start scratching beneath the surface about what, what is it? Are they more muddled? Are they more confused? Or are they sort of more sleepy or... Or it might be some other sort of softer signs like the person isn't eating and drinking as much as they normally would or they're, they're not as mobile as they normally would be or even, you know, it can be that one of the presenting things can be the person's fallen um, and actually that's the indication that they're not eating and drinking so much or they're um, sleepier than normal or the mobility has been affected. So, yeah, you're absolutely right, Helen. Yeah. So it's all different ways it can present, but yeah, sort of empowering people that if there's a change and it's acute um, to, to think about it. Yeah. Um, so what is it about delirium that makes it important to talk about? So why are we talking about it today? I, I think starting with the most important, it's really important to the people that we're looking after and their relatives because when we when I and others have talked to patient groups when they hear about delirium they're like oh yes you know that's that's what that was and it would have been really helpful to have been able to give a name to it mm. um and to, to know that there is a structured approach that can be taken to assessing it and that there's things that could be done about it so it's important to our patients people with dementia one particular at-risk group older people are another at-risk group and again I know from conversations I've had from uh, people with dementia with older people with um, relatives and carers that it's something that's really important to them and that's because it can be a sign of underlying illness it can be a marker that the person is um, going to acutely deteriorate in terms of their health and also that some of the features that can be linked with delirium such as um, some of the distress some of the agitation um, hallucinations that some might get can be really really distressing for the person experiencing it and those people around them uh, or those people that are caring for that person and I, I guess speaking more clinically there are various outcomes that um, are linked with delirium and I'm afraid they're all poor I think the most hard-hitting one is the linked mortality rate so we know from um, studies that have been done in hospital that in a month, one in five people won't survive an episode of delirium. So there is a, an associated mortality. Mm -hmm. um, also, people can uh, come to harm as a result of delirium. So I was saying it could present with falls, but equally delirium could cause falls. So it can be linked with falls, pressure sores, other harms. But it's also linked with the person staying longer in hospital, the person being less likely to be discharged back to their own home, so more likely to go into institutionalised care. And actually, one thing that we've learned during the COVID pandemic is that, you know, for older people, an admission to hospital can trigger a, a series of events that can lead to loss of dependence and, and delirium is no different in that sense. Um, 
and that high risk of readmission to hospital as well. Um, and, and also, if you're thinking about money side of things, and I know that will speak to some people, and of course, it's important in terms of designing our services, there's a cost associated with that hospital admission as well. I think as a GP, and I've seen a lot of people with delirium, and I think I've always made an assumption that that was just part of the deal. You're an older person, you get uh, an acute infection or something, and, and delirium is just part of it. And I think what's different about the approach that Emma is championing is to say, actually, it's not necessarily a foregone conclusion. There's a lot we can do to pick it up and manage it earlier I suppose that's the key thing when we're talking about this is to say oh, it's a very interesting clinical condition, but it's actually something that you can do something about. And I think throughout this conversation, we should keep that in our minds, really. Yeah, in terms of like hospital in itself can be, sorry, I keep harping on about hospital. And of course, you know, people <laughs> and people are increasingly looked after in the community, but there are a number of aspects to um, hospital-based care that are deliriumogenic. Um, and we know that in hospital, around a third of delirium can actually be prevented. So yes, it's not a foregone conclusion. And the second thing is some uh, something that other um, people will say was, well, if, you, if you're sick and you're older, would you not get delirium anyway? Um, you know, is that not just to be expected? But the difference is um, one of my uh, colleagues, Tom Jackson, who works in Birmingham, has a really nice slide of um, Mary and Martha. Mary ha has pneumonia and Martha has pneumonia and delirium. And the um, lady who has delirium with pneumonia has much poorer outcome, higher mortality rate. So it does confer a particularly bad outlook on, on a background of, of another illness. Yeah, the importance of raising awareness. Yeah, for sure. Which probably leads quite nicely into the um, next little bit because um, there's this new delirium um, toolkit in Greater Manchester that you've been involved with, Emma. And we just thought, um, as a start, would you give us a bit of an introduction to the toolkit? Uh, so I guess it started, we've been um, holding some events over the last few years for World Delirium Awareness Day and one of the first ones um, it was very interactive in terms of working with the audience and um, the audience were you know from a variety of backgrounds people with dementia carers care home staff staff from primary care secondary care mental health social care and we kind of summed up the day with what would be some of the um, key pieces of work that we should focus on and one of them was having pathways and one was pathway for the hospital but also for the community um, so that was the starting point and then we over the last couple of years I guess pulled together stakeholders from all those different groups and developed this toolkit and it's a framework with a number of resources embedded within it and guidance on how you might implement it, what team members might be needed as part of community teams to help deliver it. Mm -hmm. And it's a framework that goes from um, assessment um, right through to uh, management 
to considering follow-up and discharge from um, a particular care provider. And it also has an information sheet, which again has been developed in conjunction with a number of um, patient groups, which is also being translated into a number of different languages and is also going to be a, a speaking, a spoken document as, as well. Um, so yeah, that's kind of it in brief. I know we'll delve into different bits, but very much a, a collaborative piece of work. And and sorry, the second thing to mention is we knew there was a need, but actually it was the COVID pandemic that really catalyzed the um, completion and helping the whole toolkit to go live because there was pressure on hospital beds, um, a desire to to care for more people um, at home. There was also established part partway into the pandemic that there was a link and that pe- old people with COVID actually might present with delirium. So it was it was um, added as a particular feature that might prompt testing for COVID. So yeah, it was kind of produced and then fast tracked in response to particular circumstances at the time. Yeah, and yeah, it is. It's a, that's a lovely overview of, of its conception. Um, and like I said, we will delve into different bits of it. So we thought we'd maybe start at the at the beginning, kind of considering the toolkit. Um, have you got any thoughts about when we should suspect delirium in the community? Any tips for how we can go about identifying it out in kind of primary care? It's a really good question. Do you assess just when the person is uh, confused or do you screen people who are at risk? Um, and I think mm. one of the things that we've been learning, and I, and I guess I can sort of share best my own experience of uh, working um, in Salford with the community team. Our team have um, an assessment document when they first see uh, new patients. And as part of that, there is the single question um, in delirium, is the person more confused? And you could also add an, and or more drowsy. Um, and if the answer is yes, then that would prompt going on to further assess for delirium. The risk is if you don't assess people at risk that you're going to miss it. And that is what we found when we implemented um, delirium assessment in hospital, that if uh, it was just based on clinical suspicion, there's actually little, no evidence that clinical suspicion is good enough for picking up delirium. I guess you would pick up the more severe cases, but those kind of those cases where the person's more drowsy withdrawn, that's going to be really difficult to tease out. So I would suggest that on assessment of an older person for a variety of different presentations, that if it's kind of non-specific with falls or general deterioration, that anybody out 65 years and over should have um, that single question in delirium as part of their assessment. I was just going to say, I think this really speaks to the importance of the collateral history as well, you know, because you're only seeing someone at one point and and often families and carers actually have a very, very intuitive sense that someone is a bit delirious. And I think if we don't ask and look for that we, we just missed that opportunity. Absolutely. And we'll be talking about the, I'm sure we'll be talking about, well, in fact, I'll start talking about the 4AT assessment. One of So there's four parts to the 4AT and the reason I'm kind of launching into this now will become a bit more obvious. So there's, there's four parts to it. One is kind of observation, level of alertness. And, and the good thing about the 4AT is you can assess anybody. You can even assess people, you know, who have limitations in terms of their speech. There's a score for the person is untestable in certain domains. Um, the second bit is around it's um, the AMT4. So what's the person's date of birth? What year is it, etc. 
The third bit is around attention, so being able to do the months of the year backwards and depending on how many, um, how far the person gets will give you a score. If the months of the year are really difficult or if there's particular sort of language difficulties, 20 down to one would also be a substitute. But the fourth part, the has there been fluctuation? That's the bit that some staff find difficult to complete and that I see is sometimes inaccurately completed. And that's where the collateral history can be really important. So um, sometimes we've had patients referred and actually they're rarely referred with new confusion, but sometimes they are. Um, had a patient who was struggling, uh, had been fine putting their shoes on, but then was just really struggling to be able to put their shoes on and work out which way around they went and how to do it. And actually mm. themselves complained, I'm feeling confused. But when um, the clinician went to see them, they observed and said, well, the person doesn't seem confused to me, so I'm going to put a no for that. But then when we talked it through, we actually realised, actually, the very fact that they're saying they're getting confused, which and more often than not, it's usually a relative, but this person was saying they were having some cognitive difficulties that they hadn't before, and this was very acute. Then we agreed that actually they should have scored a three for that, which would have given them a score of four or above, which is indication for um, possible delirium. And getting a little bit academic, the 4AT used to be used as a screening tool, but actually there's been more recently published evidence that it actually can be used as a diagnostic tool. Mm. The the other key message is delirium is treatable. So if you suspect it um, and based on your um, assessment, even if you know, you're know you not 100% absolutely confident, because it's reversible, it's important to treat it as if that's what it is until you can get some further guidance. In terms of practicality, though, I think it's quite the 4AT is really important, but I would hate people to get the impression they have to do some extra scoring and things. A lot of what's in the 4AT is just pulling together what people, uh, clinicians, or, are already doing as part of their assessment. So they'll already be doing a little bit of a cognitive check. They'll already be taking a collateral history. So it's really just pulling that together. So it's not like it's an extra thing that people have to do. Yeah. Um, I had two follow-on things that came to my mind during that. The first one was you mentioned about over 65s. I thought it was maybe useful to clarify, is it only a condition of the elderly delirium? Uh, no. Um, again, really good leading question into um, risk factors for delirium. So older age is a key risk factor. Dementia is a risk factor. But anybody, if they get sick enough, can get a delirium. So you can even get delirium in, in children and, you know, sort of intensive care, critical care settings. Um, sort of those of us um, on this podcast now, if we were unwell enough, could experience a delirium. There's some other risk factors. So being on multiple medications, which I guess if you're older, you're more likely to have uh, polypharmacy. Um, sensory impairment. So any impairment of hearing or eyesight. Um, post-operative so particularly people after hip fracture surgery and, and particular medications actually can be culprits in terms of causes as well but again I guess we'll come on to that later. Are you thinking of the anticholinergic burden there Emma? Yeah anticholinergic medications and also opiates are really common culprit and steroids as well. Um, can you talk us through a, a couple of the, whilst we're on the topic, which medications um, from those anticholinergic ones are the most likely or the most common culprits to be causing or potentially implicated in somebody's delirium? Amitriptyline. 
gabapentinoids. So um, Helen just mentioned um, amitriptyline as being um, a, a, a precipitant. And of course, if somebody's been on that for a while, you wouldn't abruptly stop it, but you might kind of query, what's the reason? Could it be reduced? Could it be changed? Because sometimes people have been on things for a long time. The second group that I sort of notice are bladder stabilizing agents, and there are less anticholinergic formulations. So talk us through a couple of the bladder stabilizing ones. Oxybutynin is a, a pretty much no-no, and I haven't seen that prescribed in quite a while, actually. Um, and there is solifenacin and mirabegron, and I think mirabegron is the one that's the least. Mirabegron is significantly less uh, problematic. And maybe if I could just add as well things like um, tramadol and benzodiazepines. It's actually, it can be quite shocking how many people are on 20 milligrams of temazepam and or PRN diazepam? Although, um, in terms of um, benzodiazepines, I guess the two key messages are, if somebody's been on it for a while and they've got a delirium, not to abruptly withdraw it because it can precipitate a delirium in itself. And then the second thing is um, never, uh, um, I guess we'll come on to management, but non-pharmacological management is best or treating the underlying cause um, for delirium because short-acting benzodiazepines there's just no evidence and in fact evidence of them causing things like falls. Um, yeah I was going to say my second follow-up question was about the um, 480 um, assessment and I was just thinking about that in terms of um, someone who's got a more long-standing cognitive problem like dementia. I'm guessing you're looking for change so you're going back to look at like previous um, scores that have been done and then kind of comparing? Uh no, you wouldn't need to because it is specifically looking for delirium. So the four different bits mean the person's level of alertness shouldn't be affected by um, dementia. So it goes from normal, mild sleepiness, clearly abnormal. Um, I guess the only type of dementia might, where there might be some um, effect on alertness would be Lewy body dementia. But, you know, again, the person shouldn't have clearly abnormal alertness. They may have a degree of mild sleepiness, but they'd still score um, zero. And I guess with Lewy body dementia, that there would be that kind of, there might be that um, fluctuation as part of the illness anyway. The AMT4, you're right, They that anybody with dementia may not score very well on that because it's age, date of birth place where the person is um, current year. Um, again, you get um, a score depending on how many mistakes you've made. Attention shouldn't be so much affected by dementia, but I guess, you know, months of the year backwards, um, it may be affected by their diagnosis of dementia, but, you know, they should be able to like have a go or um, may, you know, try and then make some mistakes. But the, 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 the fourth part, the acute change fluctuating course, you know, that should again, I guess you may get fluctu fluctuation with Lewy body disease, but even then, it will be a further change. And probably overcomplicating it, mentioning Lewy body disease. I guess that's the exception, and it would it would m mean somebody um, who's more a specialist if there was that kind of query. But actually, in the majority of people, like even with dementia, you shouldn't get that acute change fluctuating course. You know, with dementia, it would be over several months there would be a change in the person, not the person becoming much more confused in, say, the last 24 hours or so, for example. Yeah. Thanks, Emma. I just thought it was worth maybe clarifying for everyone out there. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the subtypes of delirium, we've alluded to some of them in the different presentations, but can you talk us through the subtypes of delirium? I 
guess, um, three main ones. So there's the hyperactive type, which is the one that probably will be most familiar to people because it's the one that draws most clinical medical attention. So with a person's more agitated, overactive, they might be pacing, they might be experiencing some hallucinations. Um, the second type is hypoactive. It's, it is more likely to be missed. The person might um, appear withdrawn. They might be mistaken as being depressed. Um, it's more perhaps more easily overlooked. But actually, the hypoactive type does have a particularly poor outcome. And you can get people who have a mixed type, so they can fluctuate between being drowsy and being agitated. So yeah, kind of three um, main types. Okay. Um, and you've mentioned about the risk factors for getting delirium. Um, what about um, just the potential causes? Is there any sort of top tips about remembering the causes? So there's a fantastic acronym, which is PINCH ME. So uh, P is for any kind of pain. Um, and within that, you'd probably include things like um, uh, urinary retention, which is something that's very easy to miss, actually, uh, and causes quite a lot of distress and can present with delirium. And actually, that's a, it's a prompt for. Sorry, I'm gonna um, just just be your sidekick for this, Helen. But pe- but pain. The other one that um, it can be easily overlooked is um, cardiac course MI. Mm-hmm. So I always think of it just in the back of my mind. Um, pain, although of course some people might not always present with pain, but it's just like a, particularly if you can't find another cause, it might be something to think about. Mm. Um, so the I is the one that we probably all default to. I stands for infection. We've all experienced the uh, elderly person who develops a urine infection, gets better with antibiotics, and their confusion disappears. And it is an important cause, um, but there are other sources of infection. Uh, and the I also stands for intracerebral. Uh, yeah. You know, I've had personal experience of missing a subdural. Well, we eventually uh, came to that conclusion, but um, it was really, uh, really very difficult because it was very, very, it was relatively slow developing as well. So the clinical picture changed over time. So, yeah. and in in current times, that's the one to make you think of: could it be COVID, and do they need a swab? And in fact, Public Health England added it to its guidance to consider a swab if somebody presents with delirium. Yeah, the yes, the it's a bit of a bone of contention. It kind of it's a bit of a a, a, a red um, flag to a bull mention urinary tract infection in the same sentence as delirium to a geriatrician. Um, and, but actually, it is it is a common cause. But I think the couple of points to make about it are: don't be um, swayed just on the basis of a urine dipstick. The person does need to have symptoms of urinary tract infection. And I think just as a sort of a sort of a word of caution, I think it's our experience of seeing uh, delirium put down to urine infection caused by other things that makes us so wary of that. So it might sound almost a bit unbelievable, but I've seen people who have had myocardial infarctions or um, hip fractures, you know, really serious conditions. Not to say that having a urine infection and getting a delirium is not serious, but um, it, it's a serious misdiagnosis, isn't it, if it's put down to urine infection and actually it's something else that you've missed. So don't stop there. Just consider the, the full differentials. <laughs> Um, so we're up to uh, so pinch me acronym. So we've done we've talked about pain, infection, intracerebral causes. So there there are two different ways of doing it actually. So uh, sometimes N stands for nutrition, and sometimes nutrition is included in the hydration one. Um, and so the I N stands for infection. Emma, do you want to comment on nutrition? Because I suppose I always think of it in terms of um, 
you know, are they actually hungry and not able to express their wish? But that's uh, a very mechanist or mechanical kind of uh, explanation. Um, but I'm thinking it also in terms of electrolyte imbalance. Yeah, it's just as a prompt to ask if the person's at home, evidence from around the house, whether they're eating their meals um, and or whether the person appears dry and dehydrated. So, yeah, it's, th- you know, it's an indication the person is unwell or it could in itself precipitate the delirium or, or go on to cause electrolyte imbalances or acute kidney injuries, etc., that could um, be linked with delirium. So C is constipation, which I think from my experience of working in care homes is probably the single biggest cause that I come across uh, and the single thing that people don't consider. And particularly if you've got a, a person who's a bit confused and is independent, knowing whether what their stool type is can be a bit of a practical challenge. Um, but I would say it's top of my list as soon as I walk in the door is constipation, constipation, constipation. And going on to uh, be linked with uni retention, I will never forget a lady was wheeled onto one of um, the wards who was very, very agitated on arrival and she had been given some um, lorazepam and on arrival we worked it out and assessed her. She had an enlarged bladder um, and drained a couple of litres and that would agitate anybody. Um, so, yeah, it kind of goes hand in hand. So, if you haven't thought of a urinary retention ne- next to pain, think of it next to constipation because it's often the two will go hand in hand. Yeah. The importance of a, a, a examination as well, really. So, hitch hydration, particularly in the summer. And I think if someone has a an illness, if they're also dehydrated, I think it can, uh, it just exacerbates the other challenge. So again, H is one of those things. You can either put hyper and hypo in under H. So things like any kind of hyperthyroidism, hypernatremia and hyponatremia, all of those kind of metabolic uh, derangement could be filed under H or filed under M for metabolic. And hyper, hyper and hypoglycemia, really important ones not to miss as well. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, and then M is medication, which is another one of my favourite causes to get my red pen out as soon as I walk in the door. <laughs> yeah, whether anything has stopped, started, changed. Yeah, so what's new? What have they been given in hospital? What have they come out with that's a new thing? Or what has been stopped in hospital, perhaps a bit more suddenly than it might have been? We've already discussed the anticholinergic burden a little bit. So is there anything we can do to just um, reduce that? cognitive burden really and then the final uh, e is for environment i think sometimes there can be quite a lot of noise in care homes the tv blaring and six different things going on in a room and i think that can be quite disturbing for some people but any kind of change of environment so for example admission to hospital which is done as a way to investigate or keep someone safe actually that transfer of care um, location can actually exacerbate the situation and make it worse. So um, environment, family, that feeling of security and and your environment is somewhere where you're safe and you can be relaxed. If it starts to become threatening to you, that's going to um, really exacerbate the situation. Yeah, and and sort of appreciation of environment. So that's where just it's a prompt, an aid memoir for sensory impairment. Again, make sure people having glasses, hearing aids, 
dentures go hand in hand with that in terms of the hydration and nutrition side of things. That's a good point. So once we've that helpfully identified delirium and what might be the precipitant to it, what would then be the next stage to the assessment management? I think it depends depends what you found and treating those underlying causes but it's a bit of a kind of several pronged approach because delirium you know affects the whole person so I guess the, the things to consider are the kind of the medical management but also families or care home staff understanding what's happening and that's where the information sheet can be really helpful in addition to kind of a verbal explanation of what is mm-hmm. happening um, and non-pharmacological methods of managing any agitation um, and trying to avoid them in terms of any hallucinations. So helping orientate people, calming environment, good sleep hygiene, um, sticking to routines, encouraging the person to eat or drink, keeping an eye on their bladder and bowels. Um, and medication is an absolute last resort and which would should only be used if the person is in danger them to themselves or others or for example severely distressing hallucinations and even then I'm not going to go into medication type because I mean it's such a controversial area um, and it really should be a last resort and um, but even then under specialist guidance short short acting medications short courses regular review stopping things as soon as possible and I say specialist guidance not because I don't think primary care have a great deal of experience around um, management of delirium but because you know there is no evidence base for use of these medications in delirium and they can cause more harm um, than otherwise I'm sure um, Helen will have kind of perhaps a more practical approach around that but yeah, don't reach for the medication, I think, is the, one of the main messages I would want to get across. Well, I guess if in terms of practical management of that, sometimes actually I find myself in a sort of crisis where actually to, in order to get over that crisis and in order to do the blood screen and in order to create that window, I have used lorazepam in a very, very low dose. But again, that's with a very specific sort of end in mind. Let's buy some time. Let's get some things done otherwise you've got someone who's pacing about threatening people and uh, you know so I've sort of come full circle having been a completely anti anti benzodiazepine uh, medication to finding myself working in a care home and realizing that actually sometimes it's actually in the patient's best interest to temporarily sedate them it's it's also quite interesting because um some guidelines that are definitely worth people who are more interested want to know more about this looking up on not just our um community delirium toolkit which is of course excellent on the dementia united website but also the scottish sign guidelines um which talk about medications and actually um possibly surprisingly the only medication that's actually a license for use in delirium is haloperidol which i know we're increasingly of, of an opinion that it's a bit of a dirty drug um that, that one of the caveats is that you have to make sure the person hasn't got any underlying cardiac issues got prolonged qt interval on medications that could also prolong qt intervals um but i think the other reason why we're particularly cautious about um haloperidol and other antipsychotics are the side effects but also um people with parkinson's disease Lewy body disease you you know you must avoid them but they're they're also a really difficult group for what to use in these um, scenarios and they are a particularly susceptible group as well where also benzodiazepines can also um 
counterintuitively make things worse. So, um, yeah, I agree. There are scenarios, um, Helen, where you might have to use something sometimes to be able to, to treat that person, but it needs some really careful thought. And the other thing is making sure that you've assessed that person's mental capacity. You've documented it. It's a best interest decision to kind of cover that, that legal side that it is in that person's best interest to do that. Yeah, the discussion really highlights the the complexities of of treatment and trying to weigh up the balance of risks and benefits. So yeah, excellent. Um, it's maybe just worth asking actually. Um, before we kind of move on to the kind of end end game of the episode, um, is are there any important red flag conditions that we need to rule out um, before settling on definitely delirium? Well, I suppose the first thing is that delirium in itself is, I don't think if it's a diagnosis, it's a presentation, really. And you're actually looking for the diagnosis, which is the underlying cause. So there would be some red flags in my mind for the cause. But if somebody's got delirium, they've got an acute confusion that's fluctuating. That's just a syndrome, a presentation. Um, In terms of red flags, I'd probably be worried about things like head injuries, and particularly if somebody is on warfarin or pixaban or something like that, I think a good examination is quite important to making sure that nobody's got that the patient hasn't got focal neurology. I think it's just the usual red flags. You know, if you think someone's got a urine infection, well, then you're going to think about the red flags associated with that. If, if you think, yeah, exactly, you're going to do a new score, and and if somebody's on a particular medication that you think they're on sertraline and they're on PPI are you going to think is this person got low sodium if they're if they're on sertraline and a pixaban and something else you might start thinking oh am I missing a gastric bleed so I think it's very much like just thinking through your red flags for whatever causes are swirling around your head Emma do you want to add anything to that list or yeah, I think how sick the person is and whether there's kind of any plans already in place that would veer you away from escalation that would help you in terms of further management. But I know, I don't know what the, the state of play is in terms of using things like news stores in the community, but in terms of basic observations, you know, if the person's like, I don't know, hypertensive, tachycardic, temperature, etc. You know, anybody who's unwell with delirium, that decision, um, that clinical decision on as to whether to admit that to a hospital in a frail older person, there may be some caveats around that. But, you know, that needs to be absolutely clear before, um, you know, a decision is made not to admit. I think, as you say, uh, delirium following a fall or a head injury, especially if the person's on anticoagulation, um, I mean, on admission, that would be an indication for an urgent CT head, which wouldn't necessarily be a standard part of assessment of delirium. Um, you might be looking for other causes first usually the other one is new neurology um so again i guess that's sort of um linking into one of the uh the potential causes um you know a um one of the differential diagnoses sometimes people will be admitted and they'll go down the stroke pathway to begin with when actually then a stroke is um excluded and actually it's felt to be a delirium um so i think those are, are the key things not to uh to miss to help make those decisions decisions as to whether that person needs urgent admission to hospital or not. Can I just add something that I think is really important here, which is that I think you can sometimes get delirium as part of the dying process. And that I think that's something to think about is actually, does every person with delirium need bloods? Does every person with delirium need um, 
admission? Or is this part of a kind of, is this person actually in the last few uh, days of their life? And actually it would be better just to have symptom management and keep them at home. And and that can be a very uh, challenging kind of judgment call to make, I think. Yeah, I think that's where the background and the collateral history and the trajectory of that person is really important because it's it's important to recognise dying when that is the situation and not put that person and family through unnecessary distress through an unnecessary hospital admission, but equally not to misdiagnose somebody as dying when actually, you know, the, the person, it's been a very sudden thing. And that just makes me think, again, I kind of always like sort of to hang these things around um, kind of cases that I've come across over the years. And it kind of highlights also another appointed area. I remember having um, a patient with learning difficulties. And as part of that, they also had a diagnosis of dementia. Um, and they had an initial assessment were uh, drowsy, not eating and drinking, and initially felt that perhaps they it was part of their dementia and they were dying. But it was only once there was further questions and this particular person had been walking, uh, going out for walks with their family, um, very little else in the way of other comorbidities up until a couple of weeks ago. And that was the prompt to think this is not normal for this person. They're actually really quite sick and they did get admitted and they um, actually had an infection and were dehydrated hydrated and they came out of hospital. So yeah, really, really important prompt, Helen, but also really important to 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 uh to, to get the right call. And it can be really difficult sometimes. And sometimes, you know, you might not always get that judgment hundred percent all of the time. But but yeah, those are a few kind of pointers. Yeah, they're they're great examples of um the importance of having an individualized approach and a collateral history. Um, but any other advice about who may need admitting? Sort of speaking to how to manage delirium generally in the community. I think it's are there any flags? Is the person sick? Also, what community teams that you have um, and what experience they have of managing delirium. That's why in Greater Manchester, it's been great to have several teams involved in piloting the toolkit. And as part of that, the most successful teams did some education with staff right at the beginning. One of the teams did some education a bit later on, and actually it just ended up building up that there was that need for education. So it really depends if you've got, got the team to be able to safely care for that person at home. And and many community teams will have those skills, um, but it's important to kind of establish you know, whether that's going to be feasible and, and ensure that if the person does stay at home, that that's going to be um, a safe scenario and that they can receive um, the same treatment that they might have in hospital, but just in a home, um, home-based home setting instead. It's a nice overview. And then thinking about the toolkit itself, are there any, are there any practicalities around using it? Anything we need to consider um, when implementing it in practice? Um, we have created some films uh, from teams that have implemented it that I believe are already uploaded to the Dementia United website, which would be worth people having a look at. But if there were other teams who were interested, they can get in touch to find out a bit more about it. There's a lot of resources. I mean, the toolkit is very detailed and I would just encourage people to um, have a look at it. And we've also on the website got various educational resources as well for staff to be able to use. Um, for me, the toolkit gives you like a kind of structure which you can use to think through, okay, what do I need to think about? 
So it just helps families and care staff, but it also really helps clinicians to kind of work through and make sure that not missing an important reversible cause, that they're reducing the uh, things that could be triggering the delirium. Even the simplest things like making sure the glasses are on right through to having a sepsis screen. And it just helps you think those through logically and tailor your investigations and your management plan to, to an individual. Yeah, actually, the, the other thing about it, um, Helen, and I'm just having a little sort of refresh, having a little look through it is it gives you time frames. So I think that's um, coming back to your point about can things be safely managed in the community? Part of it will depend on how um, quickly that person can be assessed because at the end of the day, it, it is also a medical um, emergency. It does need timely assessment. And if that can't be um, done in the community, then the person rightly or wrongly, may need to go to um, a hospital-based environment to have that assessment. So that's an important consideration. But there is a very clear, there's a very clear structure in it as well, which I think is really important. It's how do you identify? How do you investigate? And then how do you manage it? How do you minimise the impact of it? When should you do bloods? When should you do, when should you admit? So I think it's just a really helpful kind of guide that helps us to frame work that we're already doing. It's not like new work. It's yeah. just a really helpful kind of structure, yeah, to keep us safe. You prompted me to think the other um, aspect I was just going to flag that primary care may query is is the bloods and tests. So there is a, a section and it's part of the, the toolkit, a blood screen to look for causes. I think I probably changed my view over the course of piloting it. And that probably comes from from being very hospital-based myself. And initially, I would have said, absolutely, everybody needs a blood screen to look for causes, partly because, you know, you may have an inkling of what the cause is, but the fact that I know that many people will have multiple causes, um, you might not be able always be able to pick those up on the basis of history and, and, and examination. But there is a practical element. And if you have a patient with, say, they've had a previous delirium, it's always precipitated by constipation. The person's constipated. Do you really need another set of blood tests? Probably not. And I've also seen um, there's a recent publication looking at people who were in the community and then admitted to, I think it was um, a kind of a cottage hospital type setting. And they were kind of looking at what causes people uh, tended to have. And I think around 50% also were infections, including urinary tract infections. I guess it's the cases where if you hadn't done some some blood tests or gone through that methodical approach, you can always get caught by something, you know, that hypercalcemia that you wouldn't have expected. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, I know uh, troponin is not a standard test. It would be only as... Um, as indicated, but sometimes it's when you haven't found another cause. And I had a lady who, again, had been treated, had dementia, treated with lorazepam for agitation. And once we kind of, I actually, to my shame in some ways, went, ended up going to see her a few times and she clutched her chest one of the times went to see her. And that was the precipitant for, we need to do an ECG and we did a troponin and she had a really high troponin. And actually that was the cause of her agitation. Mm. Um, so I guess the jury's a little bit out. Um, I would probably veer away from saying it's an absolute essential element for everybody. But I think there has to be a thought process thinking through, is this going to help in terms of diagnosing the causes? What do I know based on what I know of this person already and the information I already have to hand? And will blood, blood tests complement my assessment? 
I guess that's probably also where if you've got that situation with like the constipation where it's happened before, it's probably the likely scenario. That's where safety netting and, and close follow-up probably come in. If it's not improving, then I need to think about something else. I need to go for the bloods. And I guess one other comment as well is about what kind of things can be commissioned. So having a nurse come out and do blood tests can be an expensive service and hard to do in a speedy way. But if you've got resources like point of care testing, you can do a CRP. And if it's normal, you're going to not diagnose that UTI probably and start spreading your spreading your thoughts a little wider. And I get maybe a sort of a good point to um, to finish on is, is the fact, uh, go back to the title, sort of the Community Delirium Toolkit. And we've talked a lot about, is it right or wrong to admit people to hospital? And we've gone through some of the red flags. But I think um, one of the other reasons for this approach is that being cared for at home might reduce some of that distress. It might reduce some of the additional precipitating factors that may occur whilst the person's in hospital just by being moved to a different place. But obviously, primary care is an absolutely key part of that um, and part of that care delivery. Yeah, perfect. Um, that's a really lovely take home point. So I don't know if you wanted to add to that, Emma, or... Uh, I guess I just would encourage people to be confident that actually um, within GP and primary care skill sets, we often can do lots of small things that will have a really, really big impact uh, and to have a bit of um, trust in ourselves, really. Could could I just make a request? I mean, I presume you're going to be doing this anyway, but the, there's a way for uh, people to get in touch with Dementia United to, to give uh, the admin team a call. And Yeah, lovely. We can add some links for people to get in touch. I had a look this morning and you could actually just print out sort of thing to take you through the process, you know, for each individual patient. Yeah, like a bundle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which I love it. And then... Um, there's also the leaflet. I think it's really worth printing out a few copies of that. Yeah, so fa- leaflets for families and carers. Yeah, they're so, great. Yeah, the, leaf- the leaflet covers everything from if the person's had a delirium to uh, tips on preventing a delirium. There's also a section that can be, if it's uh, printed on paper, where you can complete what that person's delirium was caused by. Also, you know, in terms of um, do people with delirium need like following up? Because we didn't mention the fact that if you have a delirium, you're more likely to go on to develop a dementia in the future. And so one of the take-home messages from the leaflet, we don't want to worry people, but is if after um, several weeks, the person has some ongoing trouble with their, their memory to seek review of their memory and they might need a, a referral for an ongoing assessment to a memory clinic. Yeah, very useful. Well, thank you both so much. That's been an amazing, yeah. really rich and diverse conversation. Thank you. So yeah, um, speaking to um, Emma and Helen there was was incredibly useful. What a rich episode full of so much information. Um, What did you take away? Yeah, it was just such a fantastic talk with two really experienced and wise people who have got that mixture of understanding the framework and but then can also draw on loads of examples about individualised cases where, you know, things have been particularly different so it's it's that classic thing of managing things in the community and the gray area that general practice and um (laughs) so i always really enjoy it a sort of back and forth where there's different considerations um i thought uh, yeah understanding delirium as a presentation was really really useful that actually that it's a presentation and there's a huge load of risk factors and causes and just remembering the huge list of causes that there are 
and having a structure to that. So the idea of the toolkit being there to give you a structure, you know, it's things that you do anyway, but actually it's sort of all in one place to think through yeah. and not to miss anything. Yeah, I think you're right. That I've, I, I had the same thing noted down that it's um, not to kind of stop at diagnosing delirium, yeah. but to think, yes, it's it's a presentation, like you said, and you have to go looking for the cause of it, just like you would if someone presented with chest pain. Yeah. Um, that wouldn't just be what, where you end up. You have to go and find out why they're having chest pain. So I think that that's quite a useful click in my head. Yeah. And actually the chest pain bit was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. it was actually. Or the lack of, yeah, that delirium can be a presentation of, uh, yeah, an acute MI. Right. Yeah. Um, no, I was just going to say that the, the other um, interesting thing that, um, again, was just useful to reiterate was that it's not a foregone conclusion to some of these things. Mm. So just because somebody is elderly and has an infection, it's not automatic that they get delirium. Delirium is something added on extra that is actually really bad for the patient and has such poor outcomes if it happens. Um, so, yeah, just to... Uh, I think if you take that approach that um, you don't expect older people to get confusion when they have an infection, say, then it becomes a surprise when it happens. And then you think, oh, I actually need to do something about this. So yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. The figure she had was it that if somebody's admitted to hospital with delirium, they've got a, a one in fa- five chance of death within the first month. month? Yeah. Um, so it's huge. And that whole thing of prevention being better than cure that you, if you pick up those early presentations or those difficult presentations and ask the the slightly more probing questions. So the single question, but then mm. leading on to that screening questions, set of screening questions that actually you can pick up and screen and find the causes much quicker. Mm. Um, oh, I love the toolkit, the, the leaflets they got for carers. Because oh, um, yeah. I do find that that's well there's so many time pressures in general and there's so much that people can get from fully understanding a condition that would help them manage it in the community or pick it up quicker or yeah just empower patients and carers to to be able to manage things really well and so yeah those are really really useful yeah great resources yeah I I really like the discussion about recognition for whether or not this might represent dying and then also the importance of the collateral history really useful stuff it was there was just so much information and it wasn't there like i think yeah yeah yeah, hopefully everyone will find it really helpful um so if you want to get in touch with us there are a few ways that you can do that you can email us and our email address is primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com or you can find us on twitter and our handle is at pckb podcast Oh, we have a survey link that's in our episode description alongside all the links that we've mentioned in this episode. Um, and thank you so much to people that have filled that in. It's really useful to get your feedback. Yeah, exactly. Um, and we're acting on it. We are trying to put in place episodes and things that people are suggesting. So do let us know if you've got any thoughts. Yeah, really good suggestions there. Till next time. On Primary Care Knowledge Boost. guys just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public this was recorded in greater manchester in 2021 guidelines can vary by location as well as over time so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.